Bob Murphy Show, episode 81. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. In this episode, we've got a great interview lined up for you. My guest is Jeffrey Rogers Hummel, and what we're going to be talking about is an extension to the interview I did with Mark Thornton. So you may remember back on episode 71, so if you want to go to it, you go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 71, I interviewed Mark Thornton on the economics of slavery because he had done some original research on that topic, and we're going to extend that analysis here in the interview with Jeff because he also has published on this area. And we're, we're actually going to get a bit more nuanced, too. We're going to uncover some things, in particular, um, the labor-leisure decision and how that might change based on whether you owned your body or somebody else did. And so that we're going to really push the analysis here. So I think you'll really understand the economics of slavery much better. But the other thing I'm going to cover with Jeff in this interview is some of the arguments he relayed in his book, on the so-called civil war, war between the states, if you're from the South. And uh, in particular, he makes the argument that the reason the Confederate states lost the war was that they foolishly tried to fight like a modern nation state, right? That their military leaders had been trained at West Point, And so they were conducting the war the gentlemanly way, the way modern armies fight, as opposed to the somewhat guerrilla tactics, the decentralized tactics that the American colonists had used in the war for American independence. And so the upshot was that I had argued that the Southern states would have been able to repel the Union invasions if they had used the same tactics that the uh, American colonials did, but instead they tried to fight like a respectable modern government would and that's why they lost. So, uh, by the way, that sort of analysis was the first I had heard of that, of the, you know, just thinking like that. And so it's it, it sort of, uh, for those of you who are anarcho-capitalists or who are toying with it, but you feel like, oh, gee, don't we need the monopoly government to protect us from invasion? This is an example where, no, it's the exact opposite, that the Confederate government, if you think about it, rounded up all the able-bodied men at gunpoint and marched them into Union cannons, which was not a very smart thing to do. So, um, and, th- and that also went along with the analysis I gave, if you missed it or you want to review it, where I talked about World War One earlier in the podcast. So that was bobmurphyshow.com slash 58, where I gave the analysis to show how using the example of World War One, you could see how modern states actually cripple a region's ability to defend itself from foreign invasion. Uh, let me just give you Jeff's formal bio here. Jeffrey Rogers Hummel is professor in the economics department at San Jose State University and has taught both history and economics. He's the author of 
Emancipating Slaves, Enslaving Free Men, A History of the American Civil War. He wrote the scripts for audio tapes produced by Knowledge Products on the Constitution, narrated by Walter Cronkite, and on American Wars, narrated by George C. Scott. His articles and reviews have appeared in the Journal of Economic History, Econ Journal Watch, the Texas Law Review, the Independent Review, International Philosophical Quarterly, and such popular publications as the Wall Street Journal, and so forth. He has contributed to several volumes, including Boom and Bust Banking, edited by David Beckworth, and Reassessing the Presidency by John V. Denson, which many of you may recognize if you're fans of the Mises Institute. Professor Hummel is a former national fellow at the Stanford University's Hoover Institution, and he received his Ph.D. in history from the University of Texas at Austin. He has also worked as publications director at the Independent Institute and was a tank platoon leader in the U.S. Army. And so now, without further ado, here is my interview with Jeffrey Rogers Hummel. Well, Jeff, welcome to The Bob Murphy Show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on it. <laughs> um. So as I met the listeners from the title of this, and also I did a little prep there that they heard, I know the general uh, structure, what we're going to talk about, but you and I both agree, probably it makes more sense first to talk about the economics of slavery. And then later in this episode, we'll we'll switch over to the the tactics and, and strategy in terms of military approach during the Civil War. So as far as the economics, um, maybe, so I, I've had Mark Thornton on here, and so the, the listeners have heard some of that, but it probably would be good too for you just on your own, like to summarize to somebody who's, you know, they, they dabble and they read free market economics, Walter Williams, that sort of thing. But, you know, they haven't read the academic literature. Can you maybe describe briefly, like does has the profession's views changed and over time? Well, um, the economic profession's views hasn't changed that much over time. I mean, they've been refined, but of course there's this new history of capitalism in which these uh, former uh, social historians with quasi-Marxist tendencies, after turning social history into the dominant field in the history profession, decided to turn their sights on capitalism. And you have these major works that have argued that slavery was essential for capitalism and for economic growth. Um, and that, of course, got a lot of publicity when the New York Times magazine in mid-August 2019, uh, this year, um, featured uh, a lot of their work in what, they, in what they call the 1619 Project. So if I were to summarize sort of the overall history of, uh, of uh, discussions about the economics of slavery, um, back in 1974, when I was in graduate school, that's when Fogel and Engerman's famous Time on the Cross mm -hmm. uh, book came out. And it created quite a controversy. It had two essential arguments, one that slavery was profitable uh, and the other that slavery was efficient. And it touched off a debate which, as one economic historian has said, in fineness as well as vigor and volume has rarely been known in the scholarship of economic history. And at that time, both historians and economists were participating in the debate. Mm -hmm. And so there was a synergy between the two professions and it produced so, so Jeff, a lot. So just I just ask you, do you, do you mean there, it was, there was debate on both those questions? People disputed whether it was profitable and whether it was efficient the way an economist describes it? Um, the main debate was about efficiency. Okay, that's what uh, I would have thought. Because, yeah. because, because already... 
I mean, there had been many historians who had argued that slavery was unprofitable, but already um, some of your most prominent historians of slavery, like Ken Stamp, who was in the history department at Berkeley and was the premier Civil War historian at the time, had in his book, The Peculiar Institution, conceded that um, slavery was profitable. So the main issues that were debated were about the efficiency of slavery, and if slavery was efficient, what was the source? Mm-hmm. <laughs> can can I, I, I this, this is going to be pretty basic, but I think some people might be confused. Like, to me, like somebody would, wouldn't say, oh, our, is McDonald's profitable or not? And that would be something open to investigation because you'd say, well, if it weren't, wouldn't it have gone out of business? So what would it mean to say slavery wasn't profitable? Uh, the argument was that essentially um, slaves were kind of a status symbol, a luxury good. They oh, weren't profitable, okay. mm-hmm. but um, were essentially owned uh, for those reasons. Um, uh, rather, uh, you know, class oriented reasons rather than okay, because yeah. so that like if the accountant of the plantation owner sat down and showed him the numbers, he'd say technically your capital could be doing something better somewhere else than being tied right. up in slaves. Right. Okay. It was an implausible argument to begin with for an economist, mm-hmm. but, um, many of the historians, before Ken Stamp, uh, writing back in the forties and the thirties were, um, looking at, and, and particularly Marxist historians, um, were thinking of slaveholders as kind of a, a, um, holdover feudal class, mm-hmm. um, rather than efficient businessmen. And so, um, so, that, so just uh, ironically, that, it was the Marxists that might've been arguing that slavery wasn't profitable and these... Yeah, um, uh, this was the argument that Eugene Genovese made mm-hmm. um, in his earlier works on uh, slavery. And he was one of the most prominent uh, of the Marxist or, uh, historians who were, were looking at uh, slavery. Okay. Uh, okay? Yep. So, um, so there were lots of debates about this efficiency issue. And then Fogel later came out with his without consent or contract, and the debate um, sort of faded. And then all of a sudden, uh, about 2014, 15, um, I guess the first uh, book was uh, Walter Johnson's in 2013, uh, these new historians of slavery um, sort of embraced this notion of the efficiency of slavery, (laughs) but without any familiarity with the intricacies of the debate. And sort of ran with it. In fact, at the time when Fogel and Engerman were writing this, and I, we can go into this later, I agree with their conclusion that slavery increased the output of cotton above what it otherwise would have been under, under a free labor system. Mm-hmm. But I was wondering when some Marxist historians were going to grab onto this <laughs> to make an argument about how exploitation was essential for um, the Industrial Revolution. And so I wasn't wasn't surprised at the extent to which uh, that that this eventually happened, but it turns out that these works um, don't pay hardly any attention to that rich debate that began in 1974, mm-hmm. and are very ignorant of economics, and so have made um, highly implausible and outrageous claims. And it took a while for uh, economic historians. Uh, to look at this literature, but by now we have well over a dozen 
um, critiques uh, of the new economic history with respect to slavery, and they universally range from highly critical to scathing. And and the, and the uh, New York Times doesn't pay any attention to to this. And this these are these are in high quality scholarly journals. Uh, these critiques, and it doesn't even just involve economic historians. It involves some uh, some historians as uh, as well. And so, just to Jeff, just to make sure the listeners uh, well, get that you're so you're saying like the New York Times with the 1619 project where they're commemorating the 400th anniversary of the first slaves brought to, was it Virginia? Right. Yeah. The, co- the yeah. colony, obviously, of Virginia uh, back in 1619. So that's what that project is. And you're saying, Jeff, that they're featuring people there as if they're the stars of this move. Well, they are the stars of this movement, but you're saying anyone who does even just due diligence and looking to see how are they treated right. in, the, in the peer-reviewed literature? So, you know, this isn't yes. the Heritage We're Foundation has a pot shot taken against <laughs> them. This is like what they claim is the gold standard, right? The peer-reviewed literature. Right, right, right. And, and, it, and it reflects a dichotomy now between historians and um, economists, whereas a lot, of, a lot of historians who are not familiar with this literature um, have bought into it uh, fully. And... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and just sort of uh, dismiss economics as a discipline for ideological reasons. Okay, so I mean, it, but so you said though it wasn't merely economists pushing back against these historians. You yeah. said other straight-out historians also have raised right questions. Right. Okay. Uh, um. Is, but in general, is it is it the kind of thing where the historians have their techniques, and so they established? I mean. I'm trying to come up with something that's not so goofy and contrived, but is it, is it, let me throw this out there. Then you tell me if this isn't even in the same ballpark, what's going on. But like, you can imagine historians find some guy who writes in his journal, like, you know, Oh, and so today I instituted price controls among my men and therefore, you know, they got the goods they needed at more affordable. And an an economist comes along and says, no, from my armchair reasoning, I know that can't be right. Your historical record must be wrong. Like, so that's one, you know, one area where economists can be very confident that what they're saying is correct and the historians are misunderstanding the evidence, but you can not hear it's not a historian who doesn't believe in economics or at least the, the way it's taught, you know, and say, Oh, I don't, that, I don't trust those guys. You know, you got well, they just don't, remember mm-hmm. most of the new economic history is written by social historians. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, to be fair, um, the three pri- prime books in, uh, that have gone into slavery, uh, uh, in the new economic history, uh, Beckert's Empire of Cotton, Johnson's River of Dark Dreams, and Baptiste's The Half That Has Never Been Told are all massive tomes. Mm-hmm. So not everything they say is wrong. And they do a lot of a lot of the kind of his, history that social historians, in other words, actually, you know, anecdotal evidence about particular individuals or particular processes. Mm-hmm. Um, and And that part of the work is uh, up to historical standards and impressive. And so this leads historians who are not familiar with the literature and don't know any economics to be impressed with these works and not recognize that the overarching theoretical um, framework <laughs> that they're putting this stuff into is deeply flawed. So if I were to, if I were to summarize my view about the um, new economic uh, history with respect to slavery, is that basically what they say is true is not original, and what they say that is original is not true. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And just to go back, um, like I've written something on this, this Edward E. Baptist guy, what, you mm-hmm. know, the, I think it was in the time or somewhere had an interview with him slate or something. And yeah, it was just so the listener, when they un- try to get a sense of what do you mean that the economists are saying the historians are wrong and what's the dispute? It was thing that he was saying, ah, yeah, see capitalism owes its, its benefit or it's, you know, the U S advanced on the backs of slaves and, and like the evidence he was giving, it wasn't that the claims, like the facts were wrong. It's just, he thought that established that proposition when I was saying, no, that right. doesn't, that doesn't prove what you think it proved. Right. You know, that right, kind of right, stuff. Right. Like you would need to know if the slaves had been free, what would the economy have looked like? And that's the counterfactual comparison. It's not the matter of, yeah, of course you have more slaves. Output goes up. Duh. Right. No one's denying that slaves are physically productive. So, yeah. So what is true about uh, their approach to slavery mm-hmm. is that slave labor increased out uh, the output of cotton above weather uh, and of other staple crops like mm-hmm. sugar a- and rice above what it otherwise would have been with free labor. This was a major finding of Fogel, Enger- Fogel and Engerman who even quantified it. Um, and it's what Fogel and Engerman called efficiency. Uh, but I call it output inefficiency because it's a case where coercion, the coercion of slavery, mm-hmm. is forcing slaves off their preferred labor-leisure trade-off. In other words, forcing them to work harder or longer than they otherwise would choose to work, and therefore increasing output uh, of cotton above what it otherwise would have been. But Can, can I st- stop you there just because that's, that's a yeah. critical point? And so folks, <laughs> if you've been reading my stuff on this over the last few months when I've been writing on it and you you heard the Mark Thornton. This is a subtlety that Jeff here is getting into that I always intended to. This is going to sound like I'm I'm lying, Jeff, because <laughs> it hurts my case. And I promise I didn't mean to get, but it was just never, ah, it, was, it was always a subtle thing and never got time to get into it. So this is great stuff to show, even if you understand the general sense in which, you know, laissez-faire economic freedom allows individuals to go to the, the niche where they're valued most highly and so on. Even so, a, a lot of, um, let me put it this way, Jeff, one of the arguments I was using was to say, if they freed the slaves, they could have just gone back to those same plantations for wages and done right. the same jobs they used to do. And so there's a sense in which slavery was locking them in and what are the chances that's the right place in the, in the division of labor that all these individuals, right. but you're pointing out an issue that, well, no, technically, if they were freed, even if they were doing the same job for wages, they probably wouldn't have worked so many hours per week. They would have had a lower nominal income, and they, or would, they have, would have done different, or they would yeah. have done different jobs, or well, well, that too, they would, that have, would have, yes. or, or they would have consumed more leisure. Right, the, the um, leisure thing is the big one, yeah. Because obviously, doing you're right. So the, the higher cotton per se doesn't prove is the right thing, because maybe other things should have been, you know, the opportunity cost. But to right. the extent that the slaves also would have consumed more leisure as free men and women, right? That's an issue too. Yeah, in fact, actually, this was one of the the, the, the um, time on the cross debate. Um, led to a debate about um, the f- huge fall in output uh, in the South after uh, the Civil War. And everyone agreed that it couldn't have been due to the destruction um, because the South was growing. Um, and countries that have passed the threshold into sustained growth um, usually, usually recover within uh, five years or so. In other words, they, they, they have a rapid rate of growth to their previous growth path rather than having a permanent 
level effect. And this is what happened in, to Germany after World War I, to Germany after World War II, to Japan after World War II. And so it took 20 years for the South's output to return to its pre-war levels. And so there was a long discussion about various mm. theories about why this was true. And one of the most prominent theories is that the labor input of freed slaves declined. All of a sudden, women weren't working in the fields when they were pregnant. Right. <laughs> um, the former slaves uh, wanted households that were more like um, uh, uh, white households uh, with the father doing the main work. The woman, you know, children weren't working in the fields. So, so... But the question is, how big was this impact? In other words, economists think at the margin. And so with respect to how much, with respect to the fact that slavery may have increased cotton output, the next question you have to ask is how much? What was the magnitude? And Jeff, can I um, ask you, when you said it took 20 years, do you mean for output as a whole or just cotton production? Um, cotton production actually recovered pretty quickly. Um, output as a whole. Okay. I mean, does, does that um, output, matter though? Uh, out, output per capita okay. as a whole took actually a little bit more than 20 years to return to pre-war uh, levels. I mean, does it matter then? Like, cause wouldn't you have thought it'd be the other way? Like if, if the, if the driver for the, the fact that the GDP per head was, it took a long time to recover and you want to say, no, nah, that really can't be attributable to just the massive destruction of the men and, burning and whatever of uh grant and so forth or sherman that that can't be it for other reasons so wouldn't you have expected that the cotton production in particular to have been really depressed if it was because the slaves yeah well that's that that that's one of the arguments uh so cotton production increases in part because white farmers start going into cotton production and you get this system of uh of sharecropping Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, cotton output goes up, but that doesn't, um, necessarily, tr- uh, cotton output returns to previous le- levels, but that doesn't bring, uh, output per capita up to previous levels. Okay. So what, so what happened is the story from this interpretation is the slaves massively withheld a lot of the labor that they, you know, originally under slavery, they would have produced. So, the, the, the rough estimate of the decline in the labor input uh, on the part of slaves was by one third. Okay. And so other things equal, that would have caused a huge drop in cotton output. And so then to offset that, white farmers switched from other th- crops into cotton. And so it must have been the actual, the, the removal of white labor from other sectors that caused the overall GDP sluggishness. You get what I'm saying? Because to the extent that the slaves before were mostly involved in agricultural production, you wouldn't, it was as, were, as were most of the white farmers, but yeah. many of the white mm. farmers were involved in, in uh, subsistence. One of the things that happens after the Civil War, and this is one of the mistakes that one of the new uh, historians of, of capitalism makes, is um, that the plantation is self-sufficient uh, in terms of food um, prior to the Civil War. Uh, but after the Civil War, particularly once you get the development of, uh, of infrastructure, um, you get a switch to uh, less self-sufficiency, uh, less growing of other things and more growing of cotton. Okay. Okay, so um, do you want to return then to explain your, your concept of, uh, of your sense that you thought it was inefficient? Yeah. Um, 
Well, let me just make one point. Sure. If, you, if, you, if you look at the, at the extent to which a cotton output was increased, what that did, of course, the main beneficiaries are not the slaveholders <laughs> and not the slaves, um, but the consumers of cotton textiles. So basically what that would have done is that it made cotton textiles slightly cheaper in the U.S. and in Europe and in England. But to try to translate that into the source of, uh, of sustained economic growth, given that cotton output recovered so quickly after the Civil War, it is an enormous, egregious economic error on the part of the new hist- historians of capitalism. But to get to, get to efficiency, uh, when I, after I finished my book and I worked on my dissertation, I... Um, tried to more systematically estimate the deadweight loss from slavery. And I divided the deadweight loss into three categories. The one I've been talking about so far is output inefficiency, mm-hmm. um, in which cotton output goes, off, goes up, even though, but, but efficiency is a welfare concept, right? <laughs> right? So if people are being forced to work longer and harder than, than they otherwise would be, um, that's inefficient. And that is deadweight loss. Um, and to, uh, and um, the deadweight loss, well, let me get to the other categories. In addition to output inefficiency, you have this problem of enforcement of slavery. And slaveholders were able to socialize the enforcement costs of slavery significantly, both within the slave states and within the union, uh, through slave patrols, through uh, fugitive slave laws um, and um, other mechanisms. So slavery has an enforcement cost. And the enforcement cost, of course, because it's being subsidized by governments, right? Now it's not just falling on the slaves, right? Output inefficiency is a a cost, a deadweight loss that falls on the slaves. But with enforcement inefficiency, um, you now have free whites in the South, bearing part of the uh, cost or or suffering part of the deadweight loss from slavery. And then um, a third uh, source of inefficiency turns out that um, I call it classical inefficiency because your classical economists in general thought that slavery was inefficient unless Mm -hmm. there were particular from Adam Smith um, on. They were thinking of slavery as operating like a tax on work, um, which makes people either work less or less efficiently. Um, and there's an extent to which that's true. Um, output efficiency is the extent to which slavery is, work, is operating like a tax on leisure. But it's, only, but it's also operating like a tax on work because um, using coercion to motivate people, <laughs> right, mm-hmm. is only um, suitable for certain kinds of jobs. So if you look at any slave society in history, um, you will find the labor sector um, divided, uh, the the workforce divided into three labor sectors. One way to think about this is is the slaveholder is like an employer of free labor with extra options. The -hmm. slaveholder can always use positive incentives, but the slaveholder also gets to use negative incentives, coercion. Um, And negative incentives... Um, are not costless, right? What is the um, future income stream from a dead slave? 
So it turns out that uh, it depends on the nature of the work and other factors, whether positive incentives are more important than negative in, 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 or more, uh, less expensive at the margin for, for slaveholders. And this, uh, to, give a, to give a case that doesn't relate to the Old South, um, have you ever seen the, uh, either uh, uh, versions of that horrible movie, Ben-Hur? <laughs> or the new one is horrible. Right. The old um. I, it's been a long time if I did. Okay. I can't remember. Yeah. So one of the one of the features of Ben Hur is this has taken place in the Roman world, and um, the main character is a galley slave. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, I did see that a long time ago. Okay. No, yeah. All right. Galley slavery. If you if you talk to any uh, classical historian, especially classical histor- uh, military historian, galley slavery is virtually non-existent in the ancient world. And that's because oarsmen had to fight. Galley slavery does not emerge in the Mediterranean until the invention of gunpowder. And that shows that, you know, under one set of <laughs> arrangements, um, uh, free labor is cheaper. Under another set of arrangements, um, using coercion is, is cheaper at the, at the margin. So if you look at slave societies, they tend to be d- divided uh, have three sectors of the labor market. Um, one in which positive incentives are so much less expensive than negative incentives that you only free, see free workers doing those jobs, right? Jobs requiring uh, extensive travel, handling large sums of money, handling firearms, right? And mm-hmm. then, then you see a sector of the market where slave labor and free labor go head to head in competition. And this was true in Southern factories. Um, and this was true among skilled slaves. So can we, can we st- stop? I mean, I'm totally tracking what you're saying, but just to make sure the listener gets what the distinction is that you're drawing here, that it's, it's so even if slavery technically were, were legal and so you could try to use a slave, but you're saying like to keep them out picking cotton where you've got fences and dogs and guys on horseback with guns that have a wide range. You, and a gang and, system. Yeah, and yeah, and you can... It's kind of you easy. You can monitor them. Yeah, and you can look to it like, to see, okay, this this slave is 19 years old male who seems to be right. in good health. So you can set a level, say you got to produce this much to avoid getting beaten or something. Right. Whereas you, w- you wouldn't make a pregnant woman have the same quota. That would just be stupid. Not, not out of the tenderheartedness. Right. That would be right, right, silly right. for you to do that. Um, whereas if you're going to like, you can't say to somebody, you know what, I'm going to send you to medical school and you're going to become a brain surgeon. And if I ever catch you shirking on when you're doing surgeries, I'm going to whip you like that just, that wouldn't work. Right, you couldn't right. motivate exactly. someone that way. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So among skilled carpenters, masons, you had free, um, workers and slave workers and they went head to head in competition. Um, the only difference is that a free carpenter got to keep the entire income, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, you know, slaves were played an implicit wage. They had to be fed and clothed. Uh, and um, uh, skilled slaves actually earned higher implicit wages from their masters. But a large part of the income they generated is, is turned over to the, to the slaveholder. And then you see sectors of the economy um, where um, uh, you only see slave labor. You only see slave labor or uh, some other kind of coerced labor on plantations. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about the South, um, the Caribbean, Brazil. um, Large plantations disappear once slavery is abolished. 
Um, and um, so what this implies is, well, could some of those slaves who are being coerced on the plantation um, do the higher paid jobs? Because the first sector, right, the free labor sector is the one that has the highest, the incomes are highest in those jobs, mm -hmm. right? And the answer is certainly yes, they could have. And in fact, in many societies, they ended up doing so um, through a process known as uh, manumission through self-purchase. In other words, this means that the slave has two potential future sources of income, a lower <laughs> um, uh, stream as a slave and a higher stream as a free person. And therefore, um, the slave and the slaveholder can reach a deal where the slave um, buys his own freedom. Mm -hmm. And in fact, this was very common in Latin America, um, uh, in, the, in, in Caribbean slavery, especially in urban areas. Um, you saw highway manumission. By the, time, by the time of the Civil War, there are more free blacks in Brazil <laughs> than there are slaves. Well, somebody's, mm -hmm. you know, nobody's voluntarily immigrating from Africa. <laughs> right, so right. somebody's got to be freeing those slaves. And the estimate is half of them are uh, manumission through self-purchase and half of them are um, uh, masters freeing their sla slave children. It's, and it's, Roman, Roman slavery had, had, had a system for slaves purchasing their own freedom. But, yeah. yeah, can we just elaborate on that just a little bit? Um, because we, I talked about it with Mark because that's one of the things too is that at least in the South there were several areas that that had laws sort of regulating manumission throughout the South. Yeah, and so throughout that's the, so this the, so the, in terms of a theoretical mechanism, it's like one of my claims is in a genuine free market, even if it for some reason had the institution of slavery. But if you know, in other words, if free market transfer of property titles, it's just oh my gosh, at time zero, for some reason, some of the property was ownership of other human beings. If slavery really is very inefficient, then you would expect over time the slaves to buy their own fruit. So those property titles to their bodies would end up in their hands. Right, right. So there'd be the unfairness of the the need to transfer wealth. But strictly speaking, if you could, you know, somebody yeah, could make a lot more, they could produce a lot more being a freeman than versus being a slave, that's silly that it's locked in like that and a market normally gets resources to their most high, right. highly valued end. Yeah, well, obviously there's transaction costs associated mm -hmm. with this kind of deal. Um, and the Catholic Church in Cuba, for instance, monitored um, uh, um, these kinds of uh, manumissions. Uh, uh, and not all slaves are going to be able to have a higher income stream as a slave, but it was it's unique to Anglo-American slavery uh, that there were severe restrictions on masters freeing their own slaves. And in fact, at the time of the Civil War, in five slave states, you had to get the permission of the state legislature um, to free your uh, own slaves. Um, so what is so now? When those restrictions were um, reduced, they were actually reduced temporarily mm -hmm. uh, uh, in the Upper South at the time of the American Revolution. And as a result, in Virginia, you had more slaves freed through manumission <laughs> um, after the American Revolution than there were freed by abolition in Massachusetts. Um, and the process actually went furthest um, 
in uh, Maryland and Delaware. By the time of the Civil War, um, 90% of African Americans are free um, in Delaware, and and um, uh, uh, 50% are free in Maryland. Um, and we could go into reasons why why it was particularly the, that process worked there um, uh, more strongly than elsewhere. But what this suggests is that because of this, what I call classical inefficiency, slaves are working in the wrong jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and maybe not all slaves, but a significant number of slaves um, are working in the wrong jobs. And they're working in jobs that generate more income than the jobs they're actually working in. So you've got, you've got output efficiency <laughs> mm-hmm. pushing um, uh, output up in the South by taxing leisure, but at the same time, the combination, the, these restrictions on manumission that are preventing slaves from working in higher uh, paying jobs um, are pushing output down in the South. So it gets complicated. Hey everyone, let's take a break from the discussion to talk about Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. This is Tom's online classroom that he designed, calling upon all of his friends to teach economics and history and political science that they didn't teach you growing up in the schools. Melodrama aside, it's really a great resource. Um, I have two classes myself called uh, History of Economic Thought, Part 1 and Part 2, where we go through the classical economists, then the subjective revolution, and then up through 20th century economics, covering stuff like arrows and possibility theorem. We actually prove it if you're geeky enough and, and relish such a thing. The public choice school, what was the Lucas critique of Keynesian fine-tuning, macroeconometrics, that sort of thing. So lots of great stuff. And of course, lots of material on Bumbavark and the Austrian school more generally. So if you're going to sign up for it, though, you want to do it on either Black Friday or Cyber Weekend, which runs through Cyber Monday. If you're not hip, that means the Monday after Thanksgiving weekend. So again, if you're going to sign up, this is 2019. I'm recording. Tom's got a great deal going on if you sign up on Friday through the weekend. But it's for the master subscription is where the really good deal is for. All right. And how do you want to do it? You want to go through this link. Go to bobmurphyshow.com slash classroom. Again, act before Cyber Monday or the end of Cyber Monday for the best value. But in general, it's good stuff. And also, last thing I'll mention, you can get it as a gift, right? So if you're like, you know what? I know all of economic history. And uh, quite frankly, I understand the Constitution and its ramifications inside and out. I don't need to have these people. But maybe someone else could benefit from that knowledge. So you can get it as a gift. Go to bobmurphyshow.com slash classroom. That'll redirect you to the site and make sure that I uh, get a piece of the action. You know what I'm talking about? All right. Let me ask you this, Jeff. Um, see if I'm framing it a, a legitimate way or not, or if I'm not thinking about the right way. So, I mean, clearly, it, I think it's pretty easy to show if you include the the welfare and, and folks, when, we, when Jeff and I say welfare, we mean the economic concept, not like a welfare payment, but right. um, well-being. Um, so if if you're including the welfare of the individual slaves too, then it probably isn't hard to prove that slavery right. is inefficient. But I think the real question is, and the, you know, to the, the claim of, oh, the, the U.S., it, it owes its dominance in the 20th century because of the legacy of slavery, that sort of claim. 
I think the idea is if you look at all the non-slaves, like the, the non-slave population, and then when they're trying, they're looking at this minority group and they, and they're trying to decide, Hmm, is it, is it worth it to us? Put more morality aside. It pragmatically speaking, will we enrich ourselves by enslaving this minority group over here? And so the question is to the everyone else. So from their point of view, there's like two competing effects. If I'm understanding you, Jeff, that by enslaving, let's just say blacks from Africa, they get, get more because now that group of individuals works harder and more hours than they otherwise would have chosen to do so voluntarily. Mm-hmm. So you wring more output out of them. But the downside is, again, even putting aside morality and just from the point of view of everybody else who's going to go along with the enslavement is that now because of the nature of certain tasks, you really can't. So, yeah, you can get them to work a lot in, in the sun and backbreaking labor, but you can't get them to sit around and think about, like, how are we going to make this enterprise more efficient? Right. And, and to come up with good ideas to improve you because you can't just get a group of people. You don't know who the, the innovative people are. You don't know. You can't punish right. them. And so you're and people who otherwise might have gone into good, you know, been good uh, other jobs that slavery is not really conducive to. They can't go into those areas now. They have to just be on the plantation or other, you know, easily monitored professions. So that's a loss. So it's other people, you know, you're you gain from being part of the division of labor. And so. It, those people who are now prevented from going into occupations where they would have made more money, that's not just hurting the slave. It's also hurting other people who would have benefited from having an extra dentist or whatever in town. So, right, right. The so is that, am I thinking is, of it the right way that it's yeah, the question? Yes, yeah. In other words, if we were only dealing with uh, the tax on leisure, then the primary uh, impact of that would be that the, all of the dead weight loss falls on the slaves. But once you introduce uh, both classical inefficiency and enforcement inefficiency, then the dead weight loss is spilling over into the free population um, uh, of the South. And, and, and one of the most, uh, I actually uh, have calculated numbers, um, but we probably don't want to go into the <laughs> details of that for, for each of these sources of inefficiency. But one quick way of looking at it is if you look at output per capita um, in the South and the North um, around 1860, all right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you only count the free population, output per capita is about equal in the South or North, which is what you would expect um, with labor, uh, w- with capital mobility and at least free labor mobility, right? You'd expect convergence of income per capita. Mm-hmm. If you count the slaves, Income per capita is one third lower at the time of the Civil War than in the North. Now, that's a stunning indictment of slavery because here you have a system that is increasing the output of cotton, at the, and yet at the same time, you count the slaves as part of the population rather than as lave, livestock, and output per capita is one third lower at a time when the North is experiencing its largest relative increase in <laughs> um, immigration, which of course would have put downward pressure, other things being equal, on output per capita in the North. I think I'm getting that. Can you, would you mind just saying that? Because I, I agree there's something big there. Can you just rephrase that? I want to make um, sure everyone's getting why that, that's such a relevant... Well, basically... If you look at if you look at the free population, the North and South have converged mm-hmm. in terms of output per capita. But yeah. once you, in other words, um, uh, you're not looking at um, 
you're not counting the slaves as people. <laughs> you're right. counting them as lives. Um, but once you throw in the slave population, which was about one third of the population of the South, mm-hmm. then output per capita, counting the slaves, is one third lower in the South than in the North. That's prior to the Civil War. Right. Okay. I guess would would the apologists? I mean, so so, so what is that showing that the the slaves were less productive on average than the free population? I mean, is that well, one if, way of if, what that if, must mean? If, 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 if well, it's showing that the economy is not. Uh, I wouldn't say the slaves are less productive. I would say that the dead weight loss from slavery is offsetting the increased output from cotton and significantly offsetting the increased output from cotton. In other words, if you didn't have any dead weight loss, and dead weight loss is not going to show up in rates of growth, it's going to show up as a level effect. Sure, yeah. If you didn't have any dead weight loss and slavery was truly efficient, then all it would have involved is a transfer from slaves um, to um, slaveholders right? Mm-hmm. And output per capita counting the slaves should have been the same, right? Because all, all it's doing is transferring income. But the fact that once you count the slaves as part of the population, the output per capita <laughs> um, is lower um, than in the free states, right? Um, that's suggesting that we just don't have a transfer of income here. We have a significant inhibition on uh, income and output. Okay. Yeah. I think, I think I see it. Yeah. It, it was, I was just getting tripped up because I wasn't sure what you were including the numerator and denominator in both of those alternate calculations. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, in the North, it's just uh, output per capita counting every man, woman, child, infant. Okay. In the South, um, it's output per capita just counting the white population. All right. Um, and then output per capita including um, the enslaved population, both mean, the white population. Yeah, so that, that's why I'm, I'm being a little lost because when you were saying you would have expected, if, if slavery weren't depressing, you know, if, if the, wouldn't you just need, what if the, the slave population happened to be less productive on average than the freed people in the South? Then by adding them into the mix, wouldn't that lower per capita? Exactly. Output? <laughs> what, what you, right, but I mean, or, 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 but how do we know that that's all due to slavery? Right? All right, let it me could be because they, not, they didn't get to go to school. The slave population is inherently less productive, but slavery as a system is making the economy less productive. Okay, yeah, and I realized even I was trying to clarify to you what the alternative could. Have been. I mean, still because I was going to say, well, you know, because they don't get to go to school as much, you know, but that's because of slavery, right? So it's let me it, let me let me. Uh, propose an analogy that'll make this clear. Mm-hmm. We ha- currently have a debate on reparations, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if uh, reparations is just a transfer from, um, uh, from the rest of the population to African Americans, it should have no impact on output per capita, right? Output per capita right. African Americans goes up, output per capita of the rest of the population goes down. It shouldn't have a level effect. Um, now, we know that reparations <laughs> is going to have a negative if, if there ever is a significant government-imposed program of uh, reparations. It's going to have some deadweight loss associated with it. And that deadweight loss would show up as a fall in output per capita. 
So what I'm saying about slavery is, 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 is if slavery was merely transferring um, the income that slaves were generating to slaveholders, um, it shouldn't have had any impact on output per capita. And in fact, if slavery were efficient, if it was increasing output, output per capita should be higher <laughs> in the South than in the North when you count the entire population of the South. Okay. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I understand what you're saying. It's still not for some reason. Like, for example, you know, if you said, uh, oh, I see Walmart is employing some people in wheelchairs um, as cashiers. And so if you first add up output per person, excluding people in wheelchairs, it's one number. Now we throw in those people. Oh my gosh, output per person went down. It must be inefficient for Walmart to employ people who are in wheelchairs. And when you just say, well, no, maybe those people are less productive. Yeah, but remember, I'm comparing the South and the North. Right, Where outside of slave, in other words, I'm not, I mean, that example is correct, but it's not relevant to the one that I'm using because I'm comparing the North where you have free labor with the South where you have slave labor. So you wouldn't say, unless you want to argue that African-Americans are inherently less productive. <laughs> well, well, no, that's what I was saying. The analogy with the people in wheelchairs, it doesn't work. Right. That's what I was, that's what I was saying like five minutes ago when I realized. Oh, okay. Because okay. you could say they were, they were because like, well, they haven't been able to go to school and stuff and the, the way they were, you know, like if you instantly freed them. Right. They probably couldn't go earn, you know, so you instantly free a 20 year old male slave and he's now is a free man. He's probably his wages. If you checked in with him in six months are not going to be the same as a 20 year old white man. He's right. Right. An average 20 year old. white. Right. Yeah. On average. And so I'm saying the fact that, you know, the amount per head that that group was producing, but then when you inquire and say, okay, why is that? And, and you're right. Like, I don't think it has to do with the color of their skin. And it has to do with, you know, how they were raised and everything. And so that's why, yeah, because they were locked up in the system of slavery. So still, you know, it doesn't matter where you draw the line in terms of what's the ultimate cause. But clearly that institution of slavery is keeping this group of people from not being as productive as they otherwise would have been. Right. Okay. Um, all right. Well, that. so I guess we, we were getting lost in the weeds here, but big picture then. So you think... It, it, what do you think then of the central claim, or I don't know if it's the central, but one of the claims of the um, the new historians on this of capitalism when they are claiming that, oh yeah, the reason the United States um, was so dominant economically in the 20th century is because it, um, you know, has this legacy of slavery. What, what do you, do you think that that's I still think, an I, open question I, or? Yeah, I think that's a questionable, I think that's an idiotic Okay. <laughs> Claim. Uh, for, for, first of all, um, the timing's not right um, in terms of the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, and, you know, as, as slavery, uh, cotton production in the U.S. didn't take off until the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and England is already industrializing. Um, <laughs> Uh, by the end of the 18th century and beginning to experience uh, sustained growth, you you have to think at the margin. How big was this um, slight increase in the output of cotton and how big a difference did it make? And I did a rough calculation uh, in uh, crude, and I need to refine it, but that um, uh, that biased upward 
1850, this increased uh, output of, uh, of cotton for cotton consumers throughout the year may have, uh, on average, uh, reduced the amount they uh, had to spend on um, cotton by 27 cents. And mm-hmm. That doesn't that doesn't give you sustained economic growth. Right. That doesn't yeah. give you modern capitalism. Yeah, that doesn't uh, explain the U.S.'s position uh, on the world stage. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Uh, so, I mean, that's just that's just so far we've been focusing on the one claim of the new historians of capitalism that has a smidgen of basis in truth about um, slavery increasing the output of cotton. Of course, there are other claims that go along with that that have even less plausibility uh, mm-hmm. and are even less defensible. Well, I, I like, though, that you were admitting, like, strictly speaking, it's it's possible, right? That there, there are different countervailing forces um, having to do with the, the leisure, basically, like, to the extent that most right. of the increased output just because the slave's leisure goes way down, then that's... Um, and I guess their standard of living, too, that this, you know, slaves living in less luxurious quarters than they would if they were on their able to on their own, you know, right. buy things and so forth. By the way, this is um, one of the one of the things that of the three books, the Beckert book, even though I have many criticisms of it, is um, uh, the uh, least bad uh, of these three works. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that Beckert does is point out that the attempt to force workers um, off their preferred labor leisure uh, uh, trade-off is a dominant feature of European colonialism. And this actually is a a point that Leonard Liggio uh, once made. In other words, uh, what would happen is that in Africa or Asia – uh, especially in the ni- in nineteenth in the nineteenth century, they they'd go in and claim jurisdiction over a certain area, um, and they would impose head or hut taxes on the local natives, who um, usually at that time um, were using some kind of primitive commodity money. And so that the the, the um, <laughs> uh, leaders of the village um, would say, "Well, how do you get?" Um, how do we get the money to pay these t- taxes? And the colonial authorities would say, well, we just so happen to have over here a European-owned mine where <laughs> your men can work or a European-owned uh, plantation uh, where uh, your men can work. And so to a certain extent, um, this, um, to a lesser extent than with full chattel slavery, this was a feature of European colonialism. It's a feature uh, of um, uh, South Africa um, under British rule. In fact, if you read Bill Hutt's book on um, South Africa, mm-hmm. you notice uh, he surprisingly, and I shouldn't, I shouldn't actually mention this because somebody's going to exploit it, but he has some ambiguity about these laws in South Africa that were inducing natives to work in the mines. 
um, because he he's bought into the classical gospel of work. So on the one hand, he recognizes them as government interventions and they're bad. But on the other hand, he talks about, well, maybe this is contributing to the um, civilization <laughs> of the na- natives. Oh, like to uh, give these natives a good Protestant work ethic? Right, that kind yes. Of thing? yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, yeah, I, I haven't. I mean, I know who Bill Hutt is, obviously, and I read his. What, what's his, what's his, oh, the theory of idle resources? Is that... Yeah, yeah, but the one book I'm referring mm-hmm. to is the Economics of the Color Bar. Sure, sure yeah, I, mean, I was going to say, yeah, I haven't. Re- I know he's; those are two of his famous ones, but I've only read the one. Right. Okay. Ironically enough, the theory of idle resources—you know, maybe he's like looking at human beings too. So, yeah, why are they so idle? Let's get, let's get going. We need a, need a tax to right, motivate right. these people. Um, okay, is now a good time to ask because you you alluded to it a minute ago about um, well, several minutes ago at this point about manumission and other areas. And then this is one thing that, you know, Americans growing up, they're so U.S. centric. And I think part of the mystique about Abe Lincoln freeing the slaves and one way to kind of show that made it, maybe something else is going on here is to say, what is it, just the U.S. and Haiti that were the only places where there was a bloody war to free slaves and everywhere else, it kind of just went away. I don't want to space spontaneously, but it was largely just people buying out the slave owners, right? That, you know, just well, buying the slaves' freedom elsewhere. Um, not entirely. Um, that's true in Mexico. So, uh, most, uh, most blacks were free in Mexico by the time Mexico abolished slavery, but in your hardcore plantation societies, uh, in the West Indies, uh, the British had to adopt compensated emancipation in order to bring down. Oh, that's what uh, I'm saying. That's what I meant. I didn't mean the slaves bought them their own. I just meant the principle everywhere except the U.S. and Haiti, I believe, was that the slave owners, it wasn't someone pointed a gun at them and said, your slaves are free now. It was that they got paid. And then the issue is, did they get paid by the slaves themselves buying their own freedom or the government coming in and paying them off? Um, to a certain extent. Um, uh, but I, I think there's a big difference between, I mean, I, I would, I would, I think plantation slavery, um, manumission through self-purchase can play a, a big role in reducing plantation slavery, but uh, plantation slavery often required a little bit more than that to uh, bring it down, um, even when it wasn't um, as violent as in Haiti in the U.S., I would say. Uh, Or I guess I would put it that it was more entrenched. Well, let's go back to Maryland and North Carolina. And why why did slaveholders, right? Manumission through self-purchase is profitable for slaveholders. Right. So why do they support laws (laughs) making it illegal? And this is a case of a concentrated interest um, managing to solve a uh, free rider problem. Because from the perspective of the individual slaveholder, this is a good deal. But from the perspective of slaveholders collectively, it's a bad deal. Why? Because it increases the number of free blacks. And once you increase the number of free blacks, it makes it easier for slaves to run away. Mm-hmm. And once it's easier for slaves to run away, um, that means the future income stream that the slave is going to generate, which determines the slave's price, goes down as the probability of running away goes up, which, of course, 
makes manumission through self-purchase <laughs> more attractive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which for, So you get this self-reinforcing cycle um, where a larger free black population makes it easier to run away. That makes the price of slaves lower. That makes it more, more common for masters to manumit their slaves. And that's essentially the process that was going on um, in Delaware and in Maryland um, after, the, after the American Revolution. Right. So just to make sure the listeners, so that you're saying in the southern states where they explicitly had laws against that or or heavily restricting that practice, like from an individual slaveholder's point of view, how does it help him to have fewer options? Right. The government's telling him, right, don't have the option to let your slave buy his freedom from you. Right. You you could always just tell him no. Right. So it's but and so it's it's weird. It's counterintuitive. Why would slaveholders want the government to regulate them and take away the option of manumission? But you're saying it's because it's not, yeah, you as an individual slaveholder would like that option, but it'd be better for you if all the other slaveholders couldn't right. manumit their slaves. Right. To, and, and so that's the issue. So they all could go to the government and say, don't let us have the option of manumitting slavery or right. manumitting slaves. Exactly. So, so can you speak? I mean, this is a, a big question, but in terms of why is it? I mean, it's interesting that it looks like part of what we're saying is some of these normal, let's say, market mechanisms that would have helped at least chip at the edges of slavery were stopped in their tracks by government intervention in the southern states. And yet elsewhere around the world, that didn't happen. And so that's kind of surprising. You would have thought the place where there'd be the most laissez-faire but for the existence of this institution of slavery would be in the United States. And yet, at least on some measures, that wasn't the case. Well, basically, um, uh the answer is that slaves were an incredibly valuable asset, all right? Mm-hmm. And um, at the time of the Civil War, the estimate is that the total value of slaves, and remember that the price of a slave um, is the discounted present value of the expected um, future income expropriated from the slave. In other words, the slave does work. Um, that has uh, a marginal product, a marginal value. And um, some of that goes to the slave because the slaveholder has to um, feed and clothe the slave and sometimes motivate the slaves other ways with monetary payments. Mm -hmm. But the average is that about uh, 50% of the income that a slave generated was expropriated by – in the Old South uh, by the masters. And so you have this future stream of income – and that determines the price of the slave. Well, that's a, that was a huge asset. At the time of the Civil War, the total value of all slaves is estimated at between $2.7 and $3.7 billion, which makes it um, a, larger phys- a larger monetary asset than the total value of all railroads and, and um, factories in the North. And so... <laughs> this creates an enormous incentive to go to government mm-hmm. um, to risk a civil war in order to protect that value of the asset. Because what does that? What does emancipation do? Right? It transfers all of that human capital <laughs> from the slaveholder to the slave. Right. In fact, I would. I, um, emancipation of slaves as a result of the Civil War is certainly the largest property transfer in U.S. history, and it may be the largest property transfer in all of world history. <laughs> huh. 
I hadn't heard that before. <laughs> but but I guess what I'm getting at though is okay, but in all those other areas where at times there had been very large scale use of slavery, and yet you didn't see the laws against manumission there. I mean, the slaves were valuable there too, weren't they? Or is it? I, I know in some places like they they went through the slaves so quickly. Okay, maybe. yeah, yeah. Um, that's a complex question, and of mm-hmm. course, in the in the British colonies. Um, uh, it had to be pressure from um, the mother country in order to bring that down. In other words, the slaveholders there, the, the slaveholders who were actually had representatives in parliament, initially strongly resisted uh, Britain's abolition of the slave trade. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, they only went along with emancipation because they got compensated. Now, in the in some of the other Latin American countries, particularly Brazil, Brazil is the one country that has a plantation um, uh, system similar to the U.S. and and the Caribbean. And what's going on there is that unlike in the U.S., where you have this stark distinction between free labor and slave labor, right? I mean, there's there's virtually no middle ground. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, your uh, Brazil and your other Latin American societies are still seniorial societies with different castes and different statuses. So manumitting a slave in those societies was not moving someone to the other extreme. <laughs> it was moving them one step up in the la- uh, right. in, in the ladder in in the uh, social ladder, and often very very often there still would be. Um, client relationships between the former slaveholder um, and, the, and the former slave. And, and so I, I think that's one of the reasons why they d- didn't need as strong restrictions um, on manumission right. and didn't have as strong restrictions on manumission. Another reason is that you have a lot more, you have a lot less resistance to um, uh, sexual relations between slave, or a lot less resistant, resistance to open sexual relations between slaves and masters, in part because of in the early colonial period, the shortage of women, and um, even in Haiti, right? You have you have a huge um, mulatto population that actually initiates <laughs> um, the revolt uh, in Haiti. So that's also creating a different kind of dynamic. Okay. Right. Yeah. So I, I, I see what you're saying. There's lots of different reasons that right. each situation is unique as it were. Um, okay. So I th- probably we should quickly, no, not quickly, but we'll wrap this one up and switch to the military issues. But as far as b- big picture, so, I mean, do, is it safe to say then that economically slavery doesn't pay? In other words, like putting aside the welfare of the people that are potentially going to be enslaved the other from the rest of society's point of view, they're actually making themselves poor in the long run by enslaving someone or yes. is it okay. And, and, and to, I mean, that's, and you think that that's that. not even, that's not even close imperial. You think that that's a slam dunk demonstration. If you know the way to set up the, the comparison correctly. I never like going all the way to slam dunk. <laughs> okay, but you you, you, you yeah, don't think, think it's a, you don't I think, think it's, it's a close call. You think, I think it's, I, yeah, I don't think it's a, a close call. However, okay. I, I probably shouldn't introduce this, but I will I will mention one caveat. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, 
One of the features of free labor that people don't realize is unique to the modern world um, and doesn't really emerge fully in the 18th century is the ability of workers to quit at will. Mm -hmm. Um, Prior to that, slavery wasn't the only type of labor contract that was enforceable. Indentured servitude was enforceable. Uh, If you go back to the 17th century, servants, um, uh, you know, in the mansions like Downton Abbey (laughs) um, had um, year-long contracts, breach of a labor contract um, was a criminal offense. So what happened in England and the U.S. until the modern world, you know, it's become worldwide, is that specific performance is no longer a remedy for breach of a labor contract. Uh, That's not efficient, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So um, there's a downside to that. (laughs) And and being able to enforce labor contracts um, may be more economically efficient, although we generally don't consider it just. Okay. Except for airline pilots in the middle of a flight. (laughs) (laughs) Right, okay. Yeah, so... So just so quit, to, quitting at quitting at will is mm-hmm. is something that comes with the industrial revolution, and because it has certain inefficiencies with it, I would argue that it um it is sort of something that wealthy societies can afford more than poor societies. Okay, gotcha. Okay, so so to, your very refined position is um getting rid of. Or, or imposing slavery would make your society poor, poorer. Um, however, right now there's a certain, um, if people were allowed to voluntarily enter into labor contracts that had, that remove the option of them just walking away at any point, then um, that would be the, the most efficient possibility. But we, we haven't opted as a society for that one either. Yeah. Um, I think it would be more efficient. Let's just say I think it would be more, slightly more efficient, um, but considerably less desirable. I mean, it's one of those areas where in classical liberal thought you have a tension between contract and exit. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. So, so I like, so you're, I think you're, you're bringing that just to show you're not being right. ideological. It's not just that you want the answer to be, no, no, our economic right. science shows us slavery, right. but you're saying, Yes, slavery, I can say unambiguously, I think that's clearly empirically, that's going to make it, but technically these things that some people might be squeamish about and say that's that's kind of halfway between freedom and slavery. But again, even there, it's not that you'd want to be able to impose an indentured servitude contract on someone against their will. It just things like, I mean, and this is probably, Jeff, an example of what you mean and why maybe with poorer ones, like in a poorer society, people want to go from Europe over the United States and they didn't right. have any money. So they could say to the owner of the ship, you know, the, right. the shipping line, Hey, I'll go over there and I'll work for you for seven years as your servant. Just get me to the new world. I have no money, but you got seven years of my labor. So right, then the right. guy crosses the ocean and then the person says, you know what? I changed my mind. If you can't throw him in jail or do something to him, why wouldn't people just do that? <laughs> right, so, right, right. So yep. that's the kind of example of what you mean. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, if, you, if you can't credibly commit, to being in a long-term labor contract such that, you know, they could punish you with as a criminal offense. If you, if you uh, um, reneged on that, then that gives you the poor worker, fewer options. Right. Just like, I guess if you could just say, I don't want to ever pay back my student loan and nothing bad happened to exactly. you. Exactly. Yeah. It's that would be a whole argument for student yeah. loans. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the whole efficiency argument. Right, right. Um, okay. Well, okay. Is there anything else you want to say on that before we transition? Um, there's one more thing I wanted to say about um, the new history of capitalism, a point I want to make that some other people have made, but I think it it it, it bears repeating, even though we've gone over on, on the slavery uh, issue time-wise. And that is the worst of the three books is the one by Baptiste, the half that has never been told. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he argues there, one of the most preposterous things that he argues is he looked at the research of Olmsted and um, Rode, who discovered that the cotton uh, a slave picked per day quadrupled over the 60 years from 1800 to 1860. And they had explanations for that. Uh, Mainly uh, uh, improved varieties of cotton that were easier to pick, uh, also more productive land, other things. Uh, Baptiste, without any evidence whatsoever, claims that this increase over, remember, 60 years, Mm -hmm. quadrupling, um, was a result of calibrated torture in something he called the pushing system, in which the slaveholders ratcheted up individually to each slave the amount they had to pick. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, this is an idiotic claim on the face of it. If this were true, the Gulag Archipelago would have been the most productive economic system in right. the history of the world. Right. And, and he's not even claiming a level effect. He's claiming a sustained effect over 60 years. Mm -hmm. And the fact that this claim is taken seriously by so many historians, I think clearly demonstrates their ideological blinders. Right. Also, too, it must mean that torturers and slaveholders up until the 1800s were either too timid or stupid. You know what I mean? Like it took until this period to realize, you know, if we really tighten the screws, they'll produce four times as much. I'm, you know, why didn't anyone else think of that up till now? That's right. 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 Okay. Yeah. And I see what you're saying that it really does show the fact that that is a claim that's up there and people don't laugh it out of court or his editors don't say, how can this be right? You know, that just shows that they're not using the most common sense, you know, just think about it for 30 seconds. Can this possibly be right? And, you know, because I guess they must be looking, oh, look at the horrors of slavery is worse than we realized. You know, these people right, were, right. you know, systematic torture to extract. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, as you see, we, we obviously could even talk longer about that, but I did want to get your thoughts down uh, um, on record here. So when I read your book, one of the, um, the emancipating free slaves and slaving free men, one of the things that fascinated me the most was your discussion of how, um, so I'll give a, a real quick version then Jeff, you obviously correct me if I say something that's wrong, but then I, I would love to hear you elaborate on this. The idea that, um, on paper during the, you know, when the Southern States seceded, they should have been able to fend off the invasions from the North, just using the same tactics that the American colonials or colonists did against the British forces. You know, the British empire was the greatest power on earth at the time. Right. And the colonists managed to stave them off. So why couldn't the South have done it? And I think you even quoted, there were like European strategists and whatever that thought, oh yeah, of course the South's going to win, you know, their, their secession movement. And yet they lost. And one of the reasons perhaps is that their generals trained at West Point. And so they were taking, you know, they were inferior numerically. And so they're, what are they doing? They're sending their own police forces to round able-bodied men up, put uniforms on them so they can't run, you know, hide in the woods and march them in columns against Union cannons. 
And so it's kind of like, you know, maybe that's not a smart thing to do. And so, so anyway, I'll stop there. And then can you just take up that in, in that, that element of the narrative? Yeah. The, um, the diet of West point, uh, idea, um, or quotation actually comes from Alexander Stevens, who was vice president of the Confederacy mm-hmm. and Southerners would, didn't even consider, uh, what we call today guerrilla warfare or partisan warfare or more broadly unconventional, uh, warfare, or at least the Southern high command didn't consider it. Um, they wanted to fight a conventional war with large armies. And my argument is that they were fighting the war on the North's terms. If you look at the uh, American Revolution, um, it is true that the focus was on the Continental Army, and Washington did want to fight a war, a more conventional war. But uh, the militia and partisan warfare played as big a role in the American victory as did uh, the Continental Army. Um, The classic campaign in this case is the Battle of Saratoga, which was a turning point because that's when the French uh, agreed to uh, join the war uh, against Britain after after the American victory there. And what it involved was a large um, British army uh, marching south from Canada uh, uh, down uh, towards Albany, towards the Hudson River, um, in order to split New England off uh, from the rest of the colonies. And the issue that plagued uh, that army, which was under the command of uh, General Burgoyne, was logistics. So even before there were two battles of Saratoga, but even before those battles take place, um, he's, uh, his logistical situation has been severely impaired by irregular warfare, um, he's running low on supplies. Moreover, there wasn't even a major military force facing him mm-hmm. <laughs> before um, he reached uh, Saratoga. Uh, the Continental Army was off in Pennsylvania. But because of the willingness of Americans to allow um, major cities like New York and Boston, um, initially, not uh, later, New York and uh, and Philadelphia to be occupied by the British was that once you went inland, you had this huge reservoir of men <laughs> that you could assemble, um, and uh, Burgoyne's army is forced to surrender. And yet the South initially pursues a procedure where, under Jefferson Davis's presidency, try to protect their borders along the entire expanse of the borders. And of course, they're very vulnerable, especially on the coast, right? New Orleans is taken by the, uh, uh, by the Union very early, and along the rivers, because there the logistical problems uh, for the military are a lot less, the Union military are a lot less severe. But, um, and that means that initially the Union armies can overrun Tennessee, can gain control of most of the Mississippi, but in the West, then... Um, you have this long period of over a year where there are no further union advances because of these logistical problems. But the um, Confederacy was so intent on trying to regain territory and win major battles 
and they were so initially successful in the Eastern Theater between Washington and um, Richmond, which were the two capitals where Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson made some spectacular campaigns, that they constantly engaged in these, they, they constantly initiated these major engagements, mm-hmm. which even when they won, were not decisive um, and drained the South of manpower and actually undermined uh, Southern morale. Um, I mean, Lee, um, in driving McClellan's army away from uh, Richmond, uh, suffered enormous losses in trying to support this conventional strategy. Um, so my argument is that, and, and this argument's not original with me. Mm-hmm. Um, it was originally made by an article by Robert L. Kirby uh, in 1973, and then Joe Stromberg made the argument. Um, and uh, and I was per- per- persuaded by it that um, what's what's ironic is that of course once Richmond has fallen, Jefferson Davis still wants to continue the fight and makes the case for a regular war- warfare. But by right. then it's too late. Sure. Mm-hmm. Because first of all, huge losses of manpower fighting the conventional war and Confederate morale has utterly collapsed so So let me that's a a sketch mm, of my argument okay so again yeah just to make sure the listeners understood that so you're saying rather than you know the unions got their armies marching down and locks up and they're well trained and and, you know they got drummers or whatever and instead of meeting them in the same way instead maybe just let them come in you know with token resistance perhaps but and then just you know hide out in the woods and let people without wearing uniform you know wearing camouflage or just take pot shots at their supply lines and just you know because it's it's hard to go occupy somewhere especially the longer your supply lines get so the the deeper they came into confederate territory the harder it would be to supply the front and just do that and you, you might think oh that's not gentlemanly or that's not the honorable way to do it we're the south you know we're going to meet you head up but given that the the mismatch in resources, that was stupid to try to meet them on their own terms. If they had done it this other way, they would have been much more successful. Is that? They would have likely been much more successful, yeah. Okay. Um, the, the the wild card there is the slaves. And this is probably one, one of several reasons why they didn't want to pursue an irregular um, strategy. But to, just to give two more examples... After after uh, Grant's successful campaigns in Tennessee, um, and uh, the um, defeat at um, uh, of the uh, Confederates at the Battle of Shiloh, he eventually um, wants to move forward and seize Vicksburg on the Lower Mississippi, and this takes him over a year because his first campaign, he marches down overland. Uh, and there's virtually no Confederate force in front of him, but Nathan Bedford Forrest with his cavalry and other uh, Confederate unions sweep around his lines, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, hit his supply depots, cut off his supplies, and he has to turn back. Mm-hmm. Um, he could, uh, um, and now eventually the only way he gets to capture Vicksburg is by moving the army down the river. And even then, he has to abandon his supply lines 
after crossing um, from the west side of the river to the east side of the river to um, uh, pursue the campaign that eventually uh, bottles up the Confederate army um, in, in Vicksburg which the Confederates should have never let happen because while major battles were never decisive, sieges <laughs> were. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and another example is Sherman's march to the sea, all right? Um, Sherman uh, is um, moving from Tennessee into Georgia, trying to capture Atlanta, slowly inching his way forward, with overwhelming superiority in numbers, but he's always plagued by supply problems because keeping those railroad lines open isn't is difficult, and and Civil War armies required a lot of <laughs> a lot of um, supplies. Um, so he captured, you mean keeping them open because people at night would come and like dynamite them and stuff, or cut them, or what? or uh, and our cavalry units okay. would, would come around and 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 you know cut the railroads. Uh, mm. So, um, and he eventually um, captures Atlanta, and I'm not going to go into the details of the mistakes the Confederates made in that um, (laughs) campaign. But but then he wants to march further um, into Georgia, and he realizes that if he relies on his supply lines, he's not going to be able to do it. So Mm. Sherman's march to the sea involves living off the land. Right which is why it was so incredibly destructive. Um, However, that march to the sea, if the Confederacy still had the manpower that it had thrown away in so many previous battles, um, should have been a logistical impossibility. It should have turned out the same way as Burgoyne's march down um, from Canada. But by that time, it's too late. And even when Sherman reaches the Atlantic and can get resupplied, Savannah, um, he's still, by that time, you know, it's, he's beginning to feel the pinch of supply issues. There's, a, there's this adage amongst military analysts um, that amateurs talk strategy and experts talk logistics. <laughs> Right. And uh, that played a major, major role in both the success of the Americans during the revolution and the failure of the Confederacy to take advantage of that uh, uh, weakness, uh, the Civil War. And just to amplify there, so it's partly what you're showing there is the, why I'm interested in this stuff is because I I like seeing examples where ostensible need for coercion in one area maybe isn't so isn't so necessary. And so a lot of times people will defend the military draft and say, Oh, well, if you've got big armies coming at you, you need to engage in a draft. Otherwise, you know, how can you possibly defend yourself? But here, this is an example where there's at least, you know, a, a, a huge opportunity cost that you're saying, yeah, by them, the, by the Confederate States, you know, having a draft, getting all their men in uniform and having them march in, in the same way that the, the union armies were, that drew down the manpower. So now there weren't as many guys able to just go out and hang out in the woods and, and take pot shots and blow up bridges and do all sorts of things like that takes, you need people to do that. And if you've already sucked away all the manpower to go die in huge, horrendous battles officially, um, then they're not there to do that stuff that might not seem like it's a big deal, but in the aggregate is, you know, you're marching down over thousands of miles, perhaps depending on the route 
that can add up and that can be a huge factor. Right, right. Um, but I wouldn't confine it to just the issue of the draft. In other words, a conventional strategy um, is highly centralized and and very expensive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, an unconventional strategy is less centralized and less expensive. And, and so yeah. it's not just it's not just drafts, but taxation and other. Sure. Other aspects well, of yeah, I mean, just yeah, the military. I, I can't remember. Are you? Do you? I don't know how I'll put you on the spot. Are you? Are you an anarcho-capitalist or or not? Yes. Oh, okay. All right. Hey, we're among friends. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were, but I didn't want to assume. So yeah, this is part and parcel of showing again. Yeah, why it's wrong to think. Oh yeah, I get how the you know the government doesn't need to run schools, and, and I can understand even private road provision. But come on, when it comes to military defense, that's clearly something the state needs to provide. And this is an example where, no, you there's a problem th- that if there's a draft, especially, but even not just on its own terms, if you have a few war planners, you know, generals who trained at West Point, the ones directing your whole defense, what if they're wrong? What if they pick the wrong strategy? Right. Yeah. In other words, there is an alternative. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, we're nearing the uh, the 90 minute mark. Is there any other remarks you want to make on these these broad issues? Not if you don't have any more questions. <laughs> I mean, uh, there there's so much about the economics of slavery that we didn't get into. But yeah. um, uh, well, let me let me just say this, and I'll have you react to it. So it's ironic here that one would have supposed. Um, let me put it this way: the people who are writing, like on the the new history of capitalism, whatever, they I'm sure write more and agitate more and do more to let's say, raise awareness of the plight of the downtrodden than you and I do, Jeff. And yet it's not because we think those aren't important concerns. It's that we're saying, well, no, actually what, what, what they're doing is whether they realize it or not, their doctrine says if you could get away with enslaving a part portion of your population, go ahead and do so that it would make you richer. Yeah. And so when we're going to the economy, we're saying, no, actually it wouldn't, it would make you poor. So not only is it immoral and let's officially say that slavery is a horrible system is awful, but the point is, it's also inefficient, even for the the non-slaves, right? That it benefits a few people, but it, it costs everybody else more, and the gains to the winners are smaller than the losses to the losers, even not including the obvious downsides to the slaves. And then also here, too, it might sound like, oh, my gosh, these guys are sitting there trying to refight the Civil War because they want to maintain it. No, we're saying it's we, we're interested in freedom, and we're saying, look at how the, the Southern system, not only did they have the slave labor, which was unproductive, but they foolishly, when they went to defend themselves from the Union invasion, used more coercion, and that's one of the reasons they lost the war. So all the consistent threat here is you and I, Jeff, are ta- showing why freedom is not only moral, but also more Pract- productive and, and practical. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, there. That's that's good. I'll get <laughs> off my soapbox now. Okay. Well, my guest t- today has been Jeffrey Rogers Hummel. Um, Jeff, thanks so much for your time. Uh, it was my pleasure. And folks, um, so this is if you go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 81 for the links, I'll put a link to Jeff's book. And Jeff, if you want to send me other articles or anything that you think would be good resources for people who have seen this, um, please go ahead and do that. And I'll have them here. And uh, see you next time, folks. Thanks for watching. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.